Hello there, my name is M, and I'm here virtually alongside my co-host Rob. Hello. And Noah. Hello. For our first socially distant episode of Fax Machine. So our previous trivia episodes that you guys heard uh, over the past few weeks, uh, those are all recorded prior to our current state of pandemic-imposed, like, hermitness. Um, so from here on out, uh, we're giving remote recording a go in hopes of giving our listeners, you guys, some entertaining and non-COVID content to pass the time, and also in hopes of providing ourselves an activity that doesn't start with binge. Uh, on that note, how are you guys doing? <laughs> uh, you said something funny right as I was taking a sip of uh, a lot of wine. <laughs> it's a new brand. Um, there you go. Actually, uh, if you are interested, the wine that I'm drinking um, is wine that uh, my girlfriend bought about six months ago and then left at my apartment, but I've always been too afraid to drink because I thought that she was going to like <laughs> want it someday. <laughs> um, but then, you know, what do you, you got to do what you got to do. It's a global pandemic, so I'm just... <laughs> the social order is just slowly disintegrating, and I'm starting with this bottle of wine. <laughs> I feel like this is the month where I'll, I'll eat all those. Have you ever been to a wedding where they give you like the box of almonds? Oh, yeah. In this like really nice box. That has a name. Sure. Yeah, it's oh, really no, specific. Uh, the, they're Jordan almonds, the ones that are Jordan covered almonds. in sugar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know them from Easter, actually, because growing oh. up, like my avoge, my grandmothers used to give them out to the grandkids every Easter. It's like a Portuguese and also French and all sorts of cultural Easter thing. But yeah. Yeah, so I have like yeah. boxes of those, which I've been too afraid to eat because there's only like six and like they have this real <laughs> sentimental value, but they're they're going. There you go. And it's almost <laughs> Easter. So perfect timing. It works. Very fitting. <laughs> um, so I just looked up why Jordan almonds are given at weddings. And apparently uh, I, what I got from a Google was uh, the most common number of Jordan almonds given to guests at weddings is five. This mm. is because five is an odd number. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a reason but it says uh in each of the i don't know why that's part of it but it says and each of the jordan almonds stands for something that guest wishes for the couple these five things are happiness health fertility longevity and wealth um mm. and okay. that information comes to you from superior nut store <laughs> which uh may come back in my fact Ooh! Mm. wow what a tease <laughs> I find it weird to eat those things then. Like, unless you eat all five at once, like very soon after the wedding, like on what occasion would you eat someone's wedding almonds? <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Okay, so uh, today, as in every episode of Facts Machine, each of us will have a turn sharing one fascinating fact, and then we'll wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by this week's theme, which is espionage. Dunna, dunna. Ooh, okay. I was thinking like Secret Agent Man, like the. Anywho, um, <laughs> do you know about how that song was basically repurposed for that? But it was from like a a earlier song this guy had written, and it was like. Uh, <laughs> Is that Tom Jones? Maybe it's, but it's no, it's really it's like weird, some, and it's yeah. you get like it's one much more. Guy. 
purposed to like so it was like a musical but it was like i think it was indian uh, or set in india or something and so it's okay. like um i was born with an unlucky sneeze and <laughs> And it just goes on and on. <laughs> An unlucky sneeze? Yeah, yeah. Did I hear that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this, this one is completely off my radar, so I am very excited. Yeah. <laughs> um, so basically the original version of this song um, is basically before it was repurposed into like, I think it was the James Bond theme for one of the movies. Yeah. It was, it was a, from a song called Bad Sign, Good Sign. I'll get like an audio clip of this later and I'll put it in so you can hear a little bit of what it's like. Um, and it's amazing because the Ooh, lyrics go, good. the lyrics go, uh, I was born with this unlucky sneeze and what is worse, I came into the world the wrong way round. Pundits all agree that I am the reason why my father fell into the village pond and drowned. <laughs> this is that like low bass sign like yes. Exactly. It is the weirdest song in the world. I Well, it's wow. funny cuz I was expecting like after you kind of read the rest of the lyrics after the sneezing line, like it would make sense, but that just made it a more confusing. I know, it makes <laughs> no sense. What pundits are talking about? <laughs> such, such simpler times. They all agree. You're the reason why your father fell into the village pool yeah. and drowned. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Interesting. Uh, so with that, Rob, how about you get us started before this recording inevitably self-destructs? <laughs> So let's airdrop into this episode with something I like mm. to refer to as Operation Pastorius. Um, so this is a really cool story um, that actually I've known since childhood. Uh, so I grew up on Long Island uh, in a little the, town called- The child of two secret agents. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My real name was Wilhelm. <laughs> uh, but no, so I grew up in Long Island and like Long Island has a fair amount of folklore. Uh, actually, the folklore of Long Island, I think, is a really cool topic in general. Um, one of our friends will, will not hesitate to tell you about how Stranger Things, uh, the hit Netflix series, right. is based on uh, a laboratory that used to be out in Montauk in Long Island. Oh, no um, kidding. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the show, the the pilot, or I guess kind of the first draft of Stranger Things was originally called like Montauk or like Project Montauk. I think it's probably fair to say it's loosely based. Loosely inspired. <laughs> loosely inspired. <laughs> loosely inspired, exactly. Um, but yeah, so like it was a mysterious site and it was kind of like uh, abandoned at some point. So no one really knows what happened there. And it was like almost certainly some kind of Cold War operation um, that's not declassified and who knows. Um, but another like kind of big piece of Long Island folklore, which is, which is 100% true, is that during World War II, like pretty early on in 1942, a bunch of German spies just kind of floated ashore out in the Hamptons and then made their way into New York City. And this is just a thing that like <laughs> we would talk about and joke about as kids. Uh, and so when we had an espionage topic, I realized this is the perfect opportunity for me to look into this. And I had no idea like what a big thing this was, like what a, what a legitimate and like basically entirely true story um, the the spy the German spies of Long Island were, and so sounds like the new Real Housewives, <laughs> German spies <laughs> of Mont Montauk. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would watch. 
Um, but so it all kind of goes back to uh, 1940, 1940, let's say, or late, late 1939, when the Germans were beginning their war machine, basically. The United States wasn't even involved yet, but a lot of uh, kind of uh, expats uh, or German patriots around the world returned back to Germany to fight for the mother country. Um, and so in the process of that, a lot of people, including two like naturalized Americans, went back to Germany to enlist in their military. Um, having this kind of international group of Germans in Germany allowed them to, once uh, the US entered the war after Pearl Harbor, uh, it allowed Germany to create a spy team that was gonna eventually go back to the United States. And so this idea became Operation Pastorius. Um, and it was run by Admiral Wilhelm Canaris, who is um, this big chief uh, in Germany, uh, running a lot of their military campaign. It was named after Francis Daniel Pistorius, who was the leader of the first organized settlement of Germans in America. Um, so kind of the entire way along paying homage to like kind of German settlement in the United States. Okay, so it wasn't Oscar Pistorius. It was not, which is really... <laughs> I was going to say, who would have imagined that something named Pistorius would end in tragedy? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it... it... Yes. A differently notorious Pistorius. <laughs> yeah. But so what it was, was they took, um, so I was only aware of four Germans who uh, basically a U-boat came very close to the coast, um, submarine surfaced, and then in a small rubber kind of canoe, um, they paddled ashore. Um, and at the time, the Germans were wearing German uniforms because if they got caught and they were in uniform, they would be prisoners of war. And so basically that would ensure them a certain amount of safety. Um, I don't think the Geneva Conventions were uh, in place yet. They came after World War II, but there are at least some standards of how you treat prisoners of war. Um, because what they were doing was well outside of the kind of strict rules of war. They were on a terrorist expedition. Um, and so their mission was to sabotage and attack American economic targets uh, like the hydroelectric plants at Niagara Falls, uh, aluminum companies, uh, rivers in uh, important towns for steel production and shipping. Um, but like close to my heart, they were going to attack Altoona, Pennsylvania. Um, and I, I don't know if you guys know the most important thing about Altoona, Pennsylvania. Is that where Hershey's is? It's not far from Hershey. Hershey yeah. isn't actually, Hershey is in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Yes. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> as long as it's safe. <laughs> So, because as you remember, my, my father was a railroad enthusiast and still oh, is, right. um, all oh, the railroads nice. that kind of go through the Pennsylvania mountains, they come through one, like four track wide passage. So basically all the railroad lines converge and they go around this big looping track around the mountainside that's called the Horseshoe Curve or the Altoona Curve. Um, so all freight kind of leaving the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area through Pennsylvania to basically make their way out to Chicago, pass through this one area. Um, if you are a, a train head, um, there is a train. <laughs> if, you got, if you got trains on the brain. <laughs> if you have an especially like, nice caboose. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But if, if you go out there on a weekday, or at least when I was a child, if you went out there on a weekday, a different train passed every four minutes. It is like just, it is where freight and passenger, mostly freight trains passed through the Pennsylvania mountains. And it was an exciting place to go. So they have this whole kind of setup now for like watching trains. But that was one of the targets where they were going to go. For train spotting. Yeah. Yes. 
Okay. And I went there for not one, not two, but three summer vacations. That was like a destination. And then we'd go to Hershey Park and then we'd go home. Oh, that's nice. Nice. It was okay. (laughs) Yeah, I met a random kid there who had a steam engine hat on and we became pen pals. Oh. (laughs) That is the Uh, most wholesome thing. (laughs) Yes, but you know what's not? Espionage. Oh. (laughs) There we go. We're back. So, yes. Transition back. So the plan was to to go to the US and basically commit series of terrorist attacks. Um, And so what this group in New York did, uh, they arrived in Long Island, they took off their German soldier uniforms and they changed into kind of American casual clothes. Remember like, so the leader of this mission was a naturalized American. Like they weren't like fainting Mm -hmm. accents or anything. They like, these people knew their way around the US. Um, But as if by fate, within minutes, they had just buried like a lot of explosives and their clothes and some other things that they hoped to come back for. Uh, a, a Coast Guardsman named John C. Cullen happened upon them as he was randomly patrolling the like the hundreds of miles of beaches. Um, and he just came across these four dudes and they're like soaking wet on the beach. Um, and he was like, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, "Not nothing, go away, what? <laughs> um, and he was like, um, can you just come back and file a report to say like you're out on the beach at like five in the morning? And they're like, no, you know, it's like, it's no big deal. Um, here, have some money and don't say anything. So they've tried to pay off a Coast Guardsman to like not turn them in. And he took the $260 and then turned them in. Printed yeah. back to the Coast Guard to be like, they're Germans on the beach. <laughs> um, which, like, so in my mind, uh, the way I remembered it, this story ends with they get to the railroad station, they get on the train, the Germans. Uh, are on their way to New York City and then the Coast Guard like calls into New York City and they're intercepted like at Penn Station. Um, That's kind of how I remembered it. But that is wrong. That is not how this story ends. So um, they make it to New York City, they get a hotel room and they're there for two weeks. Um, And the only reason, so a manhunt begins, basically the, the Coast Guard puts out descriptions of the guys, says that they're somewhere in New York, they don't know where. So there's like an alert in New York City um, what's amazing is the guy who led this mission, George John Dosh. So he was the naturalized American. And he apparently, after going back and enlisting in the Nazi army, realized that he didn't believe in the Third Reich and he didn't support Hitler. Um, and so there are varying accounts. And if you read the FBI He website, was just uh, a little curious, George. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes. <laughs> but so Dash realized that he didn't want to do this. And he told the other guy, Berger, um, hey, look, I don't, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to phone this into the U.S. government and not let this happen. And Berger, so he said to Berger, I'm going to tell you something. And um, if we agree, then we'll both walk inside. And if we disagree, one of us will die here. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. And so he told Berger and Berger's like, yeah, I don't really care. I would, I would happily not do all this terrorism. Um, and so, Dosh good agreed, attitude. Yeah, like <laughs> they at least. Uh, they, this is 1942, and they had already identified that like <laughs> Hitler's regime was nothing they wanted to to carry out. And so, Berger agreed to stay in New York with um, with the other two, while Dosh actually went to Washington D.C. to turn himself into the FBI and give a full report of their case. Um, and in reading this, this is where I learned that simultaneously four other Germans, uh, got off a U-boat in Florida 
and they were making their way from Florida up the Mississippi River uh, to commit other acts of terrorism through the South and Midwest. Um, so I had no idea that this was a uh, like a huge kind of bilateral attack on the U.S. Uh, and that group, no one had any idea that they landed. So they were being headed by a guy named Curling. Uh, they landed at Pontevedra Beach in Florida near Jacksonville, and they were on their way to Chicago. So Edward, or Eddie Curling, as he was to his friends, um, he was on his way leading this other group up. Uh, and so Dash made his way down to Washington. It took him about a week to get there. Um, calls up the FBI. They got him at his hotel, brought him in. And he was like, here's what we plan to do. I have no will to do it. Like, I don't want any part of it. Here are their names. This is what they look like. Like, and a lot of them had files in the U.S. because remember, they'd spent time there, almost all of them. So, um, so this, so the, the original, the Long Island, the leader of the Long Island group, George, mm-hmm. knew about the Florida plan. Yes. Okay. That and was so, a massive yeah. mistake on their part. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like Germans will not make that mistake again. <laughs> um, but so the FBI moved in, it collected the New York group, it caught two out of four of the Jacksonville group, like right away. And then there are two Germans in the US for like a week or so. Um, they knew they were somewhere along, like their destination was Chicago. They weren't sure how far they had gotten. Um, this was this huge kind of like, um, they, they put it out to police um, that there's the potential of Germans. It's actually an amazing wanted poster I found um, that it just says like German spy, German saboteur, I'm sorry. And they posted these all around. So there's no like, I mean, you'd think at that point there'd be like a panic, but actually they were just like, let's put the information out there. And someone turned them in, like saw them and they got picked up in Chicago. Um, And so they were all put on trial, like a war tribunal. They were like clearly breaking the established rules of war. And and so this is where, um, if you've ever watched a movie, you kind of know what happens, right? Like uh, the six other guys, they all get locked up and the other two become like American heroes, right? They were all sentenced to death. Wow. Now, um, that was the Roosevelt administration's tribunal. The FBI with J. Edgar Hoover uh, made an appeal that Dosh and Berger should get reduced sentences. So Berger got life and Dosh got 30 years. Wow. And that was like how it stood in 1942. And then they had a public execution in order to like basically belittle the German attempt. Um, And it was so bad uh, like basically it embarrassed Hitler so much and that was the intention that he never tried another attempt to uh, to invade the US there are no records of any other sabotage in the US and Canaris the admiral who had had run this whole thing was basically out of a job and he probably died like at the hand of Hitler as well and this is just so like I mean this is J. Edgar Hoover who by the way um, it wasn't until Hoover had left the FBI and I think until after he died that they explained why that, that Dash had turned himself in. Like wow. Hoover was like, the FBI caught them. Yeah. That was the story that ran in the news. Like your amazing FBI did all this great work and, and caught these spies. Where literally one of them walked into the FBI and was like, I'm the German guy. Like, <laughs> um, but so what did happen in 1948 under Truman, so it's like quite a while after the war had ended, uh, Truman revisited um, and basically just commuted their sentences and said, okay, you guys have been in jail since 1942. Um, if you go back, so he said they were cleared with the expectation of deportation. Um, you can't stay in the United States. We're going to send you back to the American occupied territory of Germany, um, which is probably uh, like an okay uh, outcome, except that there's a lot of anti 
uh, well, there was a lot of negative sentiment against them because they had betrayed Germany and even kind of the part yeah. of Germany that was not um, particularly supportive of the Nazi regime, there, there was this overwhelming resentment that you could betray your country in that way. Uh, and so they didn't exactly get a warm reception. And they, they wrote about it later that it kind of was, they would have liked to have been welcomed in the United States for what they did. Um, and instead were kind of turned back, uh, which is really, because I think, like, again, just based on if you watch a movie, like, if you're in the middle of, like, some espionage thing, and then, like, the other guy, like, helps you out, like, actually, that guy usually dies anyway, but, like, he eventually helps the movie. He's, like, a hero. <laughs> yeah, um, he's viewed in a, yeah. In like, the, the Severus Snape play. character. Yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> yes. Oh, he, they do always die. <laughs> Sorry for anyone who hasn't gotten that far. Uh, I said one thing earlier to, to clarify. The Germans never tried to do any more uh, espionage in the U.S. during the war uh, for terrorism. They did, in 1944, just kind of drop two guys off on an island in Maine. Um, and those guys just kind of walked around. And apparently they were there just they had no very little money and no weapons or anything they just were supposed to collect information and like call it home to be like so what do you think because they're like is it big jet planes or the little ones and like <laughs> just asking people like what was going on and it seemed like a really like half-assed plan like at the very end of the war uh, but those two guys were picked up and just like held and then released at the end of the war so they had for two more German patriot or two more German uh, soldiers who were collected in the U.S., nothing really happened because it wasn't a big deal. Huh. So, despite the Germans' best efforts, they never successfully landed any um, soldiers in the United States for the entirety of World War II. And we know this because on FBI.gov/history, um, they have a statement at the end of their story about this, which says. Um, not one instance was found of enemy-inspired sabotage. Every suspected act traced to its source was the result of vandalism, resentment, a desire for relief from boredom, or <laughs> the curiosity of children to, quote, see what would happen. <laughs> this is the official, like, what was the cause of this potential terrorist accident? The curiosity of children to see what would happen. Kids will be kids. Yeah. <laughs> This week I learned Mansfield Smith Cumming, the first director of Britain's secret intelligence service, pioneered the use of semen as invisible ink. <laughs> and as a result, his agents adopted the motto, every man has his own pen. <laughs> and the pen is mightier than the sword? <laughs> Classic good. SNL. Yeah. Excellent. Um, they actually uh, use the word um, stylo, which means pen, but I thought I'd have yeah. to explain that. Um, so every man has his own stylo. Um, but before we move on to Mansfield Smith Cummings' career as a spymaster, I found it really interesting that um, Mansfield Smith, as he was then known, uh, joined the Royal Navy at a really young age, like 12 or 13. He was training oh. at the, uh, the, Naval, um, the Naval College at Dartmouth. Um, and that means that he too was a seaman. Just God. thought it okay. was worth pointing out. Um, but he actually got really, really bad, progressively worse seasickness and was eventually retired as, quote, unfit for service. So this is where he was like drummed out of the Navy and he was trying to figure out what to do next. He may mainly had like sort of like land based naval positions. Um, like he oversaw what is known as the boom defense on uh, some river, I think, in southern Britain. 
but it was around and he was also uh sort of gradually increasingly um recruited to do more and more sort of intelligence gathering work and it was around this time uh actually in 1889 that he married leslie marion valiant coming um <laughs> and actually took her last name uh and became mansfield smith coming which was quite interesting um and had to do with basically her being like incredibly wealthy and him being like kind of not that big a deal socially. Uh, sure, and so it was yeah. sort of part of the agreement with, I guess, her family was that he would take her name. Do you think there's a book about their travels together? It could be called- Coming Go- Together. Or Goings and Comings. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, okay. So uh, the, well, it definitely gets grosser than that. Just want you to know. So the, Awesome. The, the 20th in. century, you know, rolls around and Cumming has been dutifully running the Secret Service Bureau, uh, which is an organization that by 1911 is responsible for all intelligence operations outside of Britain. Um, so in this capacity, he became known only as C, uh, due to the way he signed documents with a C that was always in green ink. And in fact, this was the real life inspiration for Alexander Fleming's character M in the James Bond novels. Oh, okay. um, and That's today... Say, yeah. And in fact, today, all of the heads of MI6 go by C in his honor, although now it stands for chief. Mm. Um, so it's kind of interesting how that has uh, continued throughout time as well, real life as well as in fiction. Um, cool. But there are some amazing stories about his spy career prior to him running the whole MI6 operation. And uh, I mean, I'm going to tell you of a bunch of them, but I think one in particular stood out and really sets the tone for the almost surreal silliness of like the rest of his career and sort of the state of espionage uh, sort of prior to and during World War I in Britain. Um, for example, in one episode he traveled, this is actually uh, while he was, uh, remember I told you he was still in the Navy on, you know, occasionally doing intelligence jobs. So his job was to travel around Eastern Germany and the Balkans gathering information on like German industrial capacity or something like that, um, which, you know, standard spy stuff. But the amazing part of it, is that he did this and he didn't speak a single word of German. What? <laughs> so I feel like he was just walking up and be like, oh. hello, fellow Germans. <laughs> As a spy? Like they, yeah. Like... Well, I mean, you got to understand that spies at this time were just kind of like good old boys. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like it was just sort of whoever they knew that they wanted to send out on missions. I mean, it was like they were hilariously like not well-trained. <laughs> Like, um, for actually, for another time, C's top weapons expert disappeared for some time while they were brought on a mission, leading to concerns that he had been like captured or killed by enemy agents. Nope, he got out of their hotel's elevator on the wrong floor, and he couldn't find anyone to give him directions in English. <laughs> <laughs> so there was this whole scramble to be like, "What? The, where is this guy? Is he okay? Is our whole mission blown?" No, he just was like looking for the ice machine on the wrong floor. <laughs> Um, there's another time which was actually hailed as an intelligence coup where he compiled this long dossier on like the German Zeppelin technology. Um, but his superiors didn't realize that all the information was publicly available and that all he had done was have somebody translate it from German into English. <laughs> and they were like, we have figured out their secret balloon technology. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so just to return to the fact from the beginning, so coming like most intelligence operatives was faced with this issue of how to communicate covertly and securely. And this is long before the days of like sophisticated encryption or even like special gadgets that we typically associate with the idea of secret agents. Um, although these actually had 
sort of begun to some degree. They had photographs on like special thin film that could be rolled up and concealed within a fake cigarette, for example. Uh, and they had like a camera that was roughly the size of like a pound coin, which was quite small for the time, but now it's just like hilariously, you know, gigantic <laughs> for like, you yeah. know, trying to go under the radar. Um, Unwieldy. Yeah. So anyway, it was, it was quite well known actually at the time that there are many liquids that could serve as invisible ink. Uh, and also it was quite well known all the different ways that you could reveal what had been written, right? So you can think lemon juice and like heat, for example, is sort of the classic mm -hmm. way it was known for a long time. So mm -hmm. this was not something that like, just the concept of using like a clear liquid that you could see was, that wasn't brand new. It was, it was that basically all the clear liquids they had tried had been sort of already found out. Um, and so Cumming tasked researchers at the University of London with like coming up with a new kind of invisible ink that would allow his agents to communicate without being detected. But before they got back to him, one of his own agents, who in his incoming's diary actually remains nameless, probably for better, um, <laughs> wrote to him that he had discovered that semen worked great for this task. <laughs> and, and so Cumming was thrilled by this discovery. And he remarked at the time, as I mentioned earlier, now every man has his own stylo, which became somewhat of like a team motto for his agents, <laughs> because <laughs> apparently it did quite, it worked quite well for their purposes. And the chief advantage being that his agents, who were, of course, all men, as far as we know, but probably, um, had basically a never-ending supply that couldn't be discovered if they were searched. I mean, depending, I guess, on the manner of search. <laughs> but but uh, anyway, apparently, the man who proposed What are you this, up to, sir? Are you going to write some, some letters in invisible ink tonight? <laughs> uh, you just turn yourself right around. <laughs> are you writing a message or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> the irony is that if you wrote too many secret messages, you wouldn't be able to read them after you went blind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And that one broke the mic. That really was a mic drop. <laughs> I didn't drop the mic, just so you know. I, I did it for you. <laughs> Rob knocked it over with his erection. Um, <laughs> So just making things even funnier, uh, the agent who proposed this to coming was so, he was so, he, basically he was teased so much by other agents <laughs> that he had to be moved into a different department. <laughs> but this actually, but was interesting, the, why you might ask, why did this stop? <laughs> well, it, there, there are lots of reasons. Um, one reason was, it, it, I'm quoting here, led to concerns about the masturbatory habits of his agents. <laughs> but the, apparently the main reason it became less feasible was that the letters that were written by this method smelled terrible. <laughs> and this, there, this was nowhere better evidence than uh, in an exchange between one particular agent in Copenhagen who was known as Major Holm and his handler, LOL, um, <laughs> whose name was Frank Stagg. Um, and Stag was forced to tell Holm that, quote, a fresh operation was necessary for each letter because people, <laughs> his people in, in, in Stag's office began complaining that all of Holm's letters stank. Um, and basically what had happened is Major Holm had decided to stock up like a large supply of it. Oh, my God. Oh, no. And it basically, I, I guess it goes bad. <laughs> so um, he, he didn't... <laughs> He didn't realize that you were sort of intended to get fresh ink, so to speak. And that was the term they used every time he wanted to send a secret later, uh, letter. And as you'll notice, it's not just a euphemism. It's actually intentionally obscured what the ink was. 
that, so that's why they would say things because they didn't want people to know what they were writing in. Um, so some other stories, uh, just around the time the First World War was starting, which is sort of the the bulk of his, you know, the top of his career, um, he was in a big car crash while driving in France, um, and his leg was pinned down by debris in the crash, and supposedly sort of the most common story is he cut it, his own leg off with a penknife so that he could escape the wreckage. Ah. Um, and this is how the story is quoted in just about every single online article about this guy. Um, but it's slightly contradicted by hospital records that apparently show that while he did break both legs in the crash, his lower left leg was amputated the next day. So probably in a hospital. Um, and it makes mm-hmm. sense because he made up a lot of stories sort of to like build his own legend, which was very mm. useful, I guess, in his position, but also just out of vanity. Um, and he, his story about it changed occasionally too. One, one time I think he said it was, he would claim that he got into like a fight with a wild animal and it had been eaten or, <laughs> or torn off or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, sure. but, but it's all a little muddled to be honest. There's not a lot of like, there's not a lot of different sources because all of this stuff, um, really only became unclassified, I think, like, in the 80s, honestly, uh, because it was, like, British uh, Freedom of Information requests. Um, and a lot of this information comes from his own diary, uh, which was, like, I guess, unclassified in, in that as well. Um, but he did actually have a wooden leg, uh, and he walked with the help of a sword-slash-cane hybrid. Um, if, you're, if you're needing a picture of this guy, he's got a wooden leg. He's got a gold monocle that he was, like, known for wearing. Um, this uh, is he the penguin? <laughs> <laughs> he might be, but his wooden leg is actually really important for one of my favorite facts about him, which has to do with the fact that MI6 was, I mean, at the time, extremely top secret. Still, I mean, it, the British government insisted that it didn't even exist, um, which is weird to think about now. It's like it's like if the CIA, it's like we didn't know that the CIA was a thing. It's like, we just thought our country didn't have one of those. That's kind mm-hmm. of like what this is, um, which is weird because today people know about MI6, MI5, and GCHQ and all those things. And the, like the British versions of our NSA, FBI, CIA, right? Um, but this, that was good from an operational standpoint, but it was presented some difficulty from a recruitment perspective because you couldn't just like post like like spies wanted, like come serve <laughs> your country at MI6. So what would happen is, uh, coming would interview potential agents pretending that he worked for just some other more like workaday part of the government. Um, and he would just sort of give like this sort of normal interview of just like, why do you want to work for paper pushers division of secretaries, whatever. And, you know, they'd give some answer and they're just people straight out of like Cambridge or Oxford or wherever. Um, but he would basically the way he would assess whether they would be good agents. And this is like test number one was to, I mean, they, they also don't know. Remember, they don't know he has a fake leg. So he would, without warning, violently just stab himself in his wooden leg, which was covered by like a pant leg, in the middle of the conversation. And if the person flinched, the interview was over. Um, but basically, it's like if people flinched at something that was like kind of sudden like that, then they weren't cut out for the secret agent lifestyle. Um, so was he just like constantly <laughs> buying new pants then? Or walking around with just pants with like dagger-sized holes in them? <laughs> Yeah, that's where my mind goes i'm like this is highly impractical <laughs> he was actually the first guy to wear pre-worn jeans like they're already tattered he set that there whole you go aim for offs. the hole <laughs> they were cutoffs yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> 
This week, I learned that during the Cold War, the CIA and DARPA funded programs exploring the use of animals in espionage, with projects ranging from training pigeons for reconnaissance to programming dogs to operate like drones. Oh, yeah. nice. So uh, in late September 2019, the CAA released declassified or like not fully declassified, uh, they call them sanitized. So so like redacted. redacted. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Um, but released a bunch of documents regarding its animal partners programs. Uh, so for this fact, I found myself pouring over a virtual stack of these documents uh, uploaded to CAA.gov's online library, looking for kooky plans and unintentionally hilarious wording. And I have to say it was a rollicking good time and a great way to spend some time in quarantine for a suggested <laughs> albeit kind of like you know esoteric activity anyways so do you think their site <laughs> traffic is just like way up right now <laughs> <laughs> it could be if people and are looking just... for anything to do well the site the site <laughs> for animal partners <laughs> the site for animal partners is probably people looking to adopt <laughs> That's true. Just thinking it's completely barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> it's completely a totally different thing. I mean, I did have like 40 tabs open at once. So honestly, that traffic could also just all have been me. But anyways, so the four projects that they had funded um, in the 1960s and 70s as part of these programs uh, were Project Oxygas, which was focused on dolphins, Project Ketchel, focused on dogs and cats, and projects Axiolite and Takana, which were both focused on birds, uh, namely ravens and pigeons. So I should say these projects were actually informed by an earlier, albeit like pretty brief foray by the military into bird-based missile homing technology known as Project Pigeon. Um, <laughs> this was in the early 40s, um, and it was led by a preeminent uh, psychologist and behavioralist whose name might be familiar, B.F. Skinner. Yeah. Oh. So yeah. So he was a professor at Harvard in the fifties and seventies. Um, at the time, was like the most cited scholar in his field after Sigmund Freud. Like really, you know, big name, big deal. But basically, his whole thing was that he believed that free will doesn't exist, and that the probability of all behaviors is determined by their consequences. So like, it's a cycle of observation and learning, and based on what consequence of behavior elicits that's that constitutes like a positive or negative reinforcement that then either like makes up behavior more probable or less probable to reoccur um and experimentally this principle translates to uh a sort of approach known as operant conditioning which might sound familiar for anybody who's heard of pavlov and his dogs um and to kind of like conduct experiments in operant conditioning he invented this device called the skinner box that basically um, would contain an animal in his case he preferred rats and pigeons as we'll talk about um and the box would have the animal um some kind of like lever device the animal can interact with and then uh some sort of like stimulus or reinforcement uh, that would be presented to the animal when it pressed that disc or lever or what have you. If I was um, an animal and yes. like, this also presumes that I would be an animal that speaks English. I don't mm -hmm. think I would willingly go into something called a Skinner box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would present an idea, an example of negative reinforcement yeah. <laughs> in that case. Agreed. Um, but basically, so he would kind of have uh, both like positive and negative stimuli uh, results from the animals pressing the buttons. So they would get a treat or they would hear like an unpleasant noise or a slight shock or something. And eventually the animals would associate um, pressing the button with getting the reward and then thus assume a behavior they would normally not undertake. Um, so realizing that with this approach, he could train animals to do human bidding. Um, in 1943, he pitched Project Pigeon to uh, the National Defense Research Committee, which at the time had just started working on the Manhattan Project. So the idea 
was that uh, you could train a pigeon to recognize a missile target site by just showing it pictures um, and then basically teaching it to sort of press the image of the missile site and then giving it food so it would learn to do that in hopes for reward. And then he would take these trained pigeons, uh, put them in, uh, or put one, uh, in the console of a nose cone of a missile um, with a harness strapped to its head and then a screen showing a camera view of the ground. So then as the missile was flying over and the target came to view, the pigeon would see it and start pecking at it and the harness would like direct (laughs) the missile at the target, basically. Yeah. You, Um, You know they made a movie about this? No, it really? was called Doctor Strange Dove. <laughs> uh, we don't have the bell. <laughs> that is such oh, a bell worthy pun. So, anyways, so this project did not take off, but uh, because but this idea of use, training animals to do sort of like different kind of spy or military operations with operant conditioning was revisited two decades later by the CIA. So. I mentioned those four programs. Um, I'll chat a little bit about each one in turn, namely like the most ridiculous things that I managed to find out about each project. Uh, So from least to most redacted, to kind of stir up some mystery. Mm. So Project Akana, um, and that was the one predicated on pigeon reconnaissance, or, and that was the one predicated on pigeon reconnaissance in the early 70s. So the premise is that uh, they were working to train pigeons outfitted with cameras uh, to fly from like a sort of loft where they would station them in the USSR um, to a target they were trained to recognize and then return to the loft. Um, and these cameras were then capable of capturing high-res aerial photography of enemy territory, like unnoticed. Um, and not at like a lower altitude than planes flying over and also less noticeable. So definitely uh, better than images they were otherwise able uh, to capture. Um, So logistically, they trained these birds in the US, um, sort of like by kind of recreating the landscape um, and sort of directionality of the loft they would fly from and the target, um, and then transport them to the USSR, give them some time to acclimate there, um, and then deploy them. So in some of the documents, sort of sketching out how this scenario would actually play out, um, and as far as we know, it never actually did, but a uh, top concern that they had was how to unleash these pigeons um, in the USSR without hostile Soviet forces noticing that they were just someone just was letting a pigeon like fly out of somewhere for no apparent reason. <laughs> um, <laughs> and some suggestions for deployment um, that I saw included um, to release them from the window of a car going under 50 miles an hour from a skier's <laughs> backpack or from a picnicker's basket. And mind you, these are proposed as ways to like you know, without attracting attention, release a pigeon out into the world. (laughs) Because it's very normal to just go on a picnic and let some birds fly out of your basket and no one will notice. Well, you should do it at a wedding. Yeah. (laughs) They think, right? They, man. Didn't we only order five pigeons? (laughs) (laughs) One per almonds. Yeah. (laughs) This is how this is supposed to go. Um, That one with the little red blinking light, that one's for love. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, But so as far as I read, um, as I mentioned, they never actually did this. So they had at least narrowed down, uh, like per a 1976 memo, that they had planned to deploy their first set of pigeons over a shipyard in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, um, to kind of study their Soviet construction of submarines. But as far as we know, it didn't. Well, we don't know, I will say, whether it actually happened. But, uh, so yeah, that was kind of entertaining. So another project was Axiolite, and that was the other one based on training birds. Uh, In this case, 
ravens, so they tried a few different species. Oh, I, um, thought, I thought we weren't going to talk about Corvid. <laughs> that's, oh my god! Oh, yeah. that's good. Taxonomy. <laughs> and the, the worst part yes, is sometimes yes. Emily, sometimes Emily doesn't say sorry all the way. She just goes SARS. <laughs> I go SARS, not SARS. <sighs> This is slanderous. That was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Ugh, but should should we say uh, that corvids are the class of birds that crows and ravens are in? Yes. Just yeah. For... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Corvids are exactly. Ravens you sound like case. a you sound like a raven lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, stop your crowing. <laughs> but yes, <yeah>, so, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Project Axiolite uh, was based on avian emplacement. So the idea of basically having birds pick things up and put them down strategically for spy reasons. Um, so they piloted uh, a few different species, as I mentioned, um, looking at ravens, falcons, hawks, owls, and for some reason, a cockatoo, uh, whose spoiler did not work out very well <laughs> for these missions, um, with names like Duda, Dink, and Brandy, whom I can only assume Duda, and was <laughs> such a fine hawk. <laughs> such a fine hawk. Yeah. But, so yeah, anyway, so they trained a bunch of birds, or at least piloted a bunch of birds, uh, narrowed down to ravens being kind of like the most efficient. And what they were being tasked with was basically um, sort of like being outfitted with a device that they would hold in their beaks. Um, their handler would then shine a laser tag on like a windowsill or some sort of like outdoor kind of like ledge that the bird would fly to and deposit whatever the device is. And it was usually a, like a listening device or a quarter. Um, and then the handler back at the raven's nest would turn on just like like a flashlight or like a lantern of some kind, which the raven would see and then fly back. So it was just like, send the bird out, he'll drop off a recording device, come home. Um, and my favorite finds with regards to this project were from uh, a document that was called the Avian Delivery System Operator's Manual. And it was 75 pages <laughs> and it was literally a technical manual for a bird. <laughs> so it had like cage dimensions, feeding schedules, exercise routines, like it was very, very thorough. Um, my favorite highlights from it were a recipe for crow salad, which is what you were meant to feed them. Did not sound very appetizing. Um, also, this bit of crucial advice, um, in quotes, a window from which a bird is launched should, where possible, be curtained except for the actual open portion to eliminate the risk of a returning bird crashing into a transparent window pane, which you have to imagine, if it's in there, someone must have made this mistake. <laughs> Poor Raven. Um, and lastly, this other quote that was just hilarious. Commonly, weekend feeding of a bird results in some weight gain as the bird is idle and thus burning less fuel. As a result, performance on Monday, particularly in the morning, is often poor. Birds are usually not pressed for top performance on Monday, which, like, same. <laughs> like, why? birds get a case of the Mondays. I love why it. Were they, why were they only doing, like, intelligence operations on weekdays? These were I union birds. I was kind of birds. thinking that, too. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering that myself. I'm like, these guys are on, like, a strict nine to five? Like, okay. Are they getting benefits, too? That's not too bad. <laughs> and I think I might skip to Ketchel. So Oxygas was the one about dolphins, which like was interesting, but honestly not surprisingly that entertaining. Um, but Ketchel was a bit entertaining, but also just very weird and kind of creepy. So 
uh, or at least like in its implications, it was the most creepy. Um, so this was, was also like very heavily redacted. Um, but the premise of it, or at least like they described two projects, one involved implanting electrodes into dogs' brains and using electrical brain stimulation to guide their movements. So basically like converting them into little like sort of like living drones. Just super creepy. Um, and the other uh, kind of half of Ketchel involved outfitting cats with antennae and recording devices. So, so for the cats, it would literally entail like a veterinarian doing surgery on them um, to insert like a microphone and a radio transmitter. And then they would put like an antennae in their tail, which I guess kind of naturally lends itself ah. to that purpose. Oh my God. <laughs> um, but basically, so yeah, for these documents, and there were also very few generally, but like all of the names, places, like details were totally inked out, whereas like for everything else, especially the bird projects, they were pretty transparent and like, you know, open about it. Um, my favorite bit, to give you an idea of like how secretive this still is, to paraphrase, we feel that we are close to having a prototype system whereby dogs can be guided along specified courses through land areas at some distance from the operator, the purpose being to, and then it's just like 10 redacted lines. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, whew, okay. But also, weirdly enough, there's this one bit that I encountered that I feel like was not redacted, but should have been. Um, so again, paraphrased. Dr. Redacted is taking appropriate action to exploit our knowledge of this area. So being electrical brain stimulation for mind control, basically, mm -hmm. um, for the development of future agency applications in the general areas of influencing human behavior, indirect assessment, and interrogation aids. It's <laughs> hmm. <laughs> like, that's, that's very terrifying and creepy. And they're just like, yeah, we can leave this. It's fine. But uh, a lot of people, well, some people who are also trivially minded might be familiar with uh, Project Ketchel because um, though as far as I could tell this is apocryphal or not totally confirmed but um, there is a story from this project of a very spectacular failure. So if anyone here is uh, familiar with the name Operation Acoustic Kitty. <laughs> <laughs> so that was involving the cat uh, project that I mentioned before when they were outfitted with sort of recording devices. So basically the story goes that uh, this particular project ended by 1967 um, because they had, you know, been training cats and had outfitted them in this way. And they took their top cat, they're about to deploy him into the fields, like the agent loaded him, like hopped into a car, had the cat pulled it to the site, put the cat out of the car, cat gets hit by a taxi immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so I was trying to put it out that was real, but Either way, it's hilarious. Um, but so yeah, so ultimately, or I should say as far as we know, um, these efforts didn't really proceed beyond just domestic training missions and simulations um, because as like you probably expect, uh, despite sort of the idea here to kind of convert animals to machines of espionage, at the end of the day, they were still animals. So they would have issues of like, they'd have these like highly trained rages, they'd have these highly trained ravens that would like get attacked by other birds mid-flight and be taken out. Or <laughs> their pigeons that they would train to recognize a target and then come home would like fly in the wrong direction, never find their target, and then never come back with these very expensive cameras. <laughs> so, <laughs> or you have a cat who got hit by a taxi. Um, so very neat idea and concept, but at the end of the day, you know, animals be animals. All right, guys. So for the quiz this week, I opted to do uh, a very quarantine appropriate activity and actually check out the virtual collections of a museum in Washington, DC. Um, as you might guess, given the theme, I was looking at the International Spy Museum uh, because I had wanted to do a quiz all about various spy gadgets. 
Um, so Noah, you'd mentioned like one or two before and they may or may not show up in this quiz, uh, but either way, we're gonna cover a few of them and it's gonna be a good time. Cool. You guys ready? All right. All right, question one. From 1975 to 1977, CIA operatives sometimes wore glasses that concealed a small quantity of what compound, defined chemically as a carbon atom triply bonded to a nitrogen atom? Cyanide, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm. For obvious so In case they were like caught and needed to dispose yeah. of themselves. Yeah. But like really coolly, like they would chew on the edge of their glasses, like they were having a very deep <laughs> thought and then just die. That's <laughs> <laughs> how I'm imagining it at least. <laughs> So I'm going to be kind of badass. Okay, so question two. Uh, during the Cold War, uh, women KGB operatives carried a 4.5 millimeter single shot pistol disguised as what product? Whose popular shades uh, include Velvet Teddy and Ruby Woo, if you get them from Mac. I bet this is lipstick. I was going to say yeah. mascara. Oh, Ooh. okay. It's lipstick, yeah. <laughs> like a very Ruby real kiss Woo. of death. Well, 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 with, a <laughs> mascara, with a little it's mascara a brush. With a mascara brush, you could like clean your gun out. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. Kind of like, yeah, dual purpose. I'm sure there's one of those two somewhere. Yeah. Um, but yes, exactly. Well, I mean, it's also, you could have a, a gun powder case. I don't know what you call that. <laughs> what, what is that called? Where... The foundation. So, yeah. So it's just a full makeup kit at this point. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I like it. Question three. What item was used to disguise a small pistol used by the British Special Forces in World War II? Though, Rene Magritte might disagree. Was it a paintbrush? It was not, but he <clears throat> was an artist, so I bet, is on it the right track. umbrella handle? No. So, uh, so Magritte was like a, a modernist painter, and so it's got to be like a canvas or a tripod or a, some art well, So, yeah. He's so just it, carrying I, around like an easel. It's like, <laughs> well, second, let me get my concealed easel. <laughs> Easel gun. <laughs> <laughs> totally chill. So yeah, the clue with him is that I'm, I'm referencing a very specific, very well-known painting of his called uh, The Treachery oh. of Images. Is it a pipe? Yes, exactly. Is that the, this is not a pipe painting? Exactly, I yes. See. So it was a tobacco pipe. Very good. Mm. All right, question four. Bulgarian dissident writer Georgi Markov was famously murdered in London in 1987 by a member of the Bulgarian Secret Service using what instrument that was outfitted to be deadly? <sighs> it was it like a tuba, tuba zuka? <laughs> no, but I like it. But I guess the, the main clue here is like, like in a way that's kind of hilarious, the place at which this murder occurred makes the actual tool like very appropriate and would it makes it blend in very well with its surroundings. So this was, was in like, London. Okay. Yeah. Was it like, at an orchestra or something? No, 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 no. So it's something that a Londoner would have on their person probably pretty frequently given oh, that. So this is an umbrella. They would... Yes, oh. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. Damn, oh, I... instrument. Oh, instrument like musical. <laughs> yeah. I did not. I'm mm. thinking. <laughs> I was like clarinet. Yeah. <laughs> right. Instruments can play music. Yeah, I did not put that together. When I was, I was trying to this. think of like other like music weapon puns. I was I just imagining every episode of like uh, Wile E. Coyote and anything where there might've been a music, like a big gong. <laughs> takes the hammer and just smacks him over the head. <laughs> or violin cindiary bomb. Ooh, I like it. I like it. No, you know I hate violence. <laughs> That's good. 
But yes, indeed. So the weapon uh, has since come to be referred to as a Bulgarian umbrella. And basically it's an umbrella outfitted with a little pneumatic mechanism in the tip uh, that fires like a sharp pellet containing ricin. So like this writer was walking along Waterloo Bridge and a member of the Secret Service, the Bulgarian Secret Service, just walked by, poked him and he was done. Um, Very kind of like peculiar, yeah, uh, way to take someone out. All right, so question five. Agents of the CIA and the KGB both concealed stuff in coins. That actually, as you mentioned, uh, Noah, although in your case, uh, using the British pound. But yeah, hiding things in coins was a pretty frequent move. Um, in the US, one version of this involved what coin uh, whose name culinarily precedes potatoes and pancakes? Um, is it a uh, silver dollar? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Or silver, yeah. Yes, yeah, silver dollar. I was like, yeah, I was going through a list of coins and I'm like, which one of these lends itself to a different clue? And then (laughs) I was hungry at the time and there (laughs) you go. Um, Question six. Uh, The insectothopter designed by the CIA in the 1970s uh, for intended use in surveillance was modeled after what insect belonging to the infraorder in Asoptera, which comes from the Greek for unequal wings? Oh, dragonflies. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was ready to give more clues. You got it. Nice. Um, so no, yes. W- once so. you get into animal like phylogeny and names, like we're good. That's true. I, <laughs> I honestly, I know who I'm dealing with. Ever like since you burned us on red hot chili peppers, I've just studied. <laughs> oh, yeah, I will never ever forgive you. Please. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good moment, though. That was really was, great. That, I could tell. I just feel like how satisfied you guys were to get that from across the table. Um, but yeah, so the idea of this, I thought was kind of cool. Like, you know, like a little like remote control bug. Uh, the only problem though, is that like when any crosswind faster than five miles an hour, you could just, it would just fall apart basically. <laughs> so, you know, but it was a bug in a bug, which is kind of funny, you know, hmm. recording instrument in a bug. Yeah. It's Anyways. in section. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> All righty. Question seven. In the 1990s, the CIA built what remote-controlled creature to record underwater signals from enemy crafts? Uh, presumably, though, without constructing a fake online identity for said creature. Oh, <laughs> a catfish. Yeah. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> it completely gave it away, but was absolutely worth it. <laughs> I just wanted to make the joke. Um, but hilariously, his name was Charlie the Robot Fish. And literally, if you pull up pictures of it, it looks like one of those like fake fish that you would mount on the wall. Like a, things what, don't a worry, be happy. Billy bass. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted it to be like a billy bass, so I could be like. Eh. But anyways, yeah. Catfish. <laughs> Maybe he's been repurpose for that. We don't know. Yeah. Um, question. It's probably eight. you know they always say like you know research into one thing can develop technologies that come up for a completely different use. I feel like the big mouth billy bass just came out of attempts with CIA to make murder fish. <laughs> That's true. You just toss him in the dumpster and some like entrepreneurial guy walked by and was like, I could put this in people's like man caves. Yeah, it, it was, they put it in. Give it a job. Well, I prefer that. I, I prefer to think that the Big Mouth Billy Bass was just like an early attempt to like do mass surveillance on like <laughs> every single house in the U.S. It's like it's like then Alexa came along, <laughs> yes. like Echo, and it's they were the like prototype for Alexa. Why didn't we think of that? <laughs> <laughs> we had to manufacture all these fish. Oh man, I wonder we had to get if the rights like... to these songs. 
<laughs> well, I wonder if someone's hacked one of those though and like put an Alexa like in it. That would be Whoa. sick. Oh my god. Like, hey Billy, like what's the weather? And the fish just like tells you that it's gonna be <laughs> that's, you know, 80 that's degrees outside. So not hard to do. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like that can totally be done. Oh yes. All right. And well, I've now offered at least two ideas for quarantine projects in this <laughs> <Yep>. episode. <laughs> Question eight. In the 60s and 70s, the CIA designed a, uh, a prototype prosthetic that could be worn by downed fighter pilots to conceal a rescue radio on their person. Uh, what anatomical feature, which is involved in maintaining homeostasis, was the prosthetic modeled after? Is this testicles? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Remember when I said that I built this whole quiz just to ask one question? <laughs> it was that. So, yeah, so it was a scrotum. <laughs> it, is, it, it, it was a scrotal concealment device, um, which to me begs the question of like, I mean, so, right, makes sense. Like fighter pilots, people in the military, at least back then were men. So sure, believable. But I mean, a lot of men already have scrotums. So where did this actually, I, I don't, I, yeah. I mean, I, well, you can pull up the picture. It's very lifelike, so it's, but I just don't really understand picture. how it's so meant to work. Oh, yeah. So it's a radio scrotum? Uh, it, so it you've, is, got, it was... you've got your AM, your FM, and your scrotum? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, I guess. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And it was, so do they all, I have so many questions. I know. Like, Listen, did they, <laughs> they always wore it? Or like their plane was crashing and they're like, really quick, let me slip this radio over my sack. <laughs> just... just <laughs> <laughs> just shouting Mayday with their hands down their pants. Like. <laughs> so is this, this was a. It was a proto. So the, is the point of this that <laughs> the picture is ridiculous? Yeah, the picture is it's horrific. Very lifelike. Um, yeah. But so my question is, I, what I don't understand is, is the, is, is it a prosthetic scrotum or is it just meant to go inside your scrotum? I mean, I I, I don't know. That's the thing, like. So I like think... the the thing itself, like it looks like it looks like a scrotum, but it's hollow, and then the, the little radio uh, inside. Okay, but so the it says placement. I don't understand. So, it says, so I think it's it gives an explanation for that on the website. So it says um, okay. uh, it was specifically designed to be used by down male, downed male pilots to conceal a small escape radio. Male security guards, it was thought, would not thoroughly search the general right. area. So I think right. the idea is you would just sort of put it in front of your pre-existing scrotum. Right, but in which yeah. case, then why did you need like? A whole, I don't know. Like, I feel like this it's, was a level of detail that was not. Because if the idea is that, like, we, we'll hide something here because no one will search here, then, like, why is it so detailed if they're banking on no one searching? Well, it had to be <laughs> a cursory <laughs> glance, is what I'm saying. Like, I guess, yeah. I guess. You're not like, okay, oh, okay well, you know, I, that is a scrotum. Okay. I yeah. Avert my eyes. That's okay. true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you don't, I guess you don't want to look at them too closely, anyways. I mean, I don't even <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, this is enough detail. Yeah. All right, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, if you'd like to check out more content from us, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. Uh, we are also individually on social media. Um, I'm at underscore EM Costa on Twitter. Noah? At Arcs and Sciences. And Rob? At Sweater Vest SCI. Fax Machine is produced by Rob Frawley, Noah Guyberson, and Emily Costa, with editing by Noah Guyberson. The theme music is by AC Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. That's all for now. See you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.